0: As you can see, the service is a little different this morning. Um, we are going to sing after I am uh, uh, done preaching here, but uh, we're also going to pray some more, so don't, be sure not to uh, check out early thinking you know what's going on. All right. <laughs> um, uh, our 33rd president, Harry Truman, famously said his political opponents operated on the principle, if you can't convince them, confuse them. And as a pastor, I hope that I am never guilty of that. Uh, But I heard some feedback from last week's message to the effect that I tried to pack about 20 pounds of theology into a five pound sermon, and that things may have gone by a bit fast. Um, And so, my goal is never, since my goal is not just the transmission of information, uh, but that the Holy Spirit would use His Word, that the Word of God, as we sang, would speak to bring about the transformation of our hearts and lives, I thought I might back up and take another run at explaining the outlines of the seven basics of Orthodox Christian belief from a slightly different perspective that maybe might help some of us to get our arms around it a little better. So, Sarah, you got that first slide? You can put that up. We're looking at the church, and the church is the, the organism, the living entity composed of all of the people who have been baptized by the Holy Spirit of God into the body of Christ. Uh, All the people from all times and places. And a local church is the local assembly of those people who have uh, been placed by faith into the body of Christ. And they exhibit, uh, as they are together, certain marks and works. They are the marks of orthodoxy, order, and ordinances. Uh, So, in other words, correct belief, the correct organization, (laughs) and the correct practices, uh, including especially baptism and communion. Baptism we participated in last week. Communion we'll participate in next week. Uh, But also certain works, certain things the church exists to do. Evangelism, uh, sharing the gospel with lost people. Edification, discipling people who come to faith in Christ, and exaltation—what we're doing here this morning, lifting up Jesus Christ in worship. Okay, so uh, these are the basic components of the of the of the uh, what the church is and does, and uh, what it exists to do. But we want to talk about a little bit more about this concept of orthodoxy. Okay, raise your hand if you are a parent. Who has had to take your child to the orthodontist? Okay, I have. I am working on my fourth trip to the orthodontist with my children. Okay, they got uh, They got all of my good genetics, I guess, and uh, they've had to. Uh, they've had to go to the the ortho straight or correct dentist uh, from the word denta which means teeth. So literally, if you go to the orthodontist, you go to the tooth straightener. It's literally what it means, okay? Sounds a lot better in Greek than it does in English. But, you know, it's like, yeah, we had to get to the tooth straightener, you know? I mean, that's, that really brings that profession down a notch, doesn't it? <laughs> but, but in any case, uh, orthodoxy, the word doxy has to do with belief or... Um, or opinion or teaching that is correct or straight or in line with the scriptures, and so if you want to be orthodox as a church, you want to be in line with and and correct and straight with reference to the scriptures. Okay, those things which are in line with and straight in line with the scriptures. So. Um, I think it's helpful to think of these seven basic beliefs as components in a story. And every good story has a beginning. And our story has a beginning. And the beginning is with God himself. So, uh, Sarah, if you put that up, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, right? In the beginning, God... Created the heavens and the earth, and so at the beginning of the story, uh, you get an introduction to the main character and how everything else after that is going to happen. And it's not just any god, any uh, anyone that you might happen to imagine or dream up for yourself, but it's a, a specific god, a god who creates and is distinct from and who brings into existence everything else in creation. And you meet in verse, uh, in, uh, I believe it's verse 2 of Genesis 1, you find out that there is God, and then there is the Spirit, and the Word of God also is there, creating the things which God's uh, decree has uh, declared should exist, right? So you have God, you have the Word, you have the Spirit. So from Genesis 1, you have a specific kind of God, that. God as trinity, God who exists as three persons in one being. And he is the main character of the whole story. That may surprise you. The Bible is not about you. The Bible is about God. He is the main character, okay? And it's about what he does and who he is and and how he brings the story to its completion, from beginning to end. And if you have a story, you also have a uh, second point: a central conflict. Right? If you, if, you know, if you read Hemingway, he wrote about the old man and the sea. Right? It's this old guy versus the ocean, and he's out there trying to catch this giant marlin. Right? And it's, and it's pages and pages of this guy out there getting sunburned, trying to catch this marlin, right? And it's not all that exciting of a book, but that's the central conflict of the story. If you, if you read about, uh, if you read Jane Austen, you read about Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy. And you spend like 600 pages trying to figure out if they're going to get over their pride and prejudice and get married, right? There's a central conflict at the, begin, at, in, at the heart of the story that needs to be resolved in order for the story to come to its completion. Well, our story also has a central conflict, and it's sin and the depravity that results from that. Depravity is a $50 theological word that means that sin affects every single part of us. It affects our mind. It affects our body It affects our relationships. It affects everything about us as people. And this is the central conflict at the heart of the Bible. That people whom God created exist from Genesis 3 until Revelation chapter 20 in rebellion against God. And... Uh, Romans 5.12 says it this way, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. In other words, God created Adam and Eve, and as soon as they were created, virtually right after that, sin comes into the world. And death comes into the world as a consequence uh, because death is the penalty for sin and rebellion against God. And that penalty and that tendency towards sin comes to every single person because we're all descended from Adam and Eve. And that's the conflict at the heart of the Bible. How is that issue going to be resolved? Well, just like every other good story, every good story needs a hero. We have one. And our hero is Jesus Christ. Every story, you know, you need an Aragorn or a Zorro or a Lone Ranger or an Ethan Hunt or even a Mr. Darcy, if you're into that, right? You need a central figure who solves the, the story's central problem. And as a great story, Jesus is the hero. He is the hero to which all of the Old Testament law points. All of the prophets foretell His coming. All of the writings find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He is the sole Savior on which the church is built and to which the church looks for salvation. Why? Because He is the solution to the problem of sin and depravity and death. Look at Romans 5, 1-2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through who? The hero, our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace by which we stand and, and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Though we are born sinners as Adam's children, we are born anew by faith in Jesus Christ, and in in the great war that we have declared by ourselves uh, with our sin against God, peace has been established. The peace treaty has been signed with the blood of Christ. And we, by grace, in other words, by God's undeserved favor toward us, he has established peace in Jesus Christ with us. And he has made sinners righteous and able to live once more in his presence. And we are told that the fall's effects are not going to be permanent, that death is not going to reign forever, and sin is not going to have mastery over us forever. And it's going to come one day to an end because we are in the process of being rescued. How does he rescue us? According to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, he rescues us by grace through faith. You know, if you watch Mission Impossible movies or you watch Ocean's Eleven movies or some of those, you know, there's always a plan, right? We've got to enact the plan. And then you, then you or, or like the A-team, you know, I love that guy. I love it when a plan comes together, right? Uh, God has a plan for how the hero is going to enact salvation. And the way that it works is a way that none of us could have ever imagined. It's by grace through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. In other words, uh, our rescue from our sin and its penalty of death and, and eventually hell comes not about by our own participation and our own effort and our own work or trying harder to be good. It comes about Not through some kind of strenuous program of self-improvement and self-atonement for our sin. Where we go, you know, God, I'll just try really, really hard to make it up to you. I know I'm a screw-up, and I know that I'm in rebellion against you, but I'll just try harder. God says, no. It's a gift. It's something that you cannot work for or earn or deserve you can simply receive in fact according to this passage if you read it closely you'll see that even the faith required to receive the gift comes to you as a gift even the faith to believe is a gift of God and so our salvation is something that God gives us from beginning to end even the faith to believe is from him So that no one can boast and say to God, you're welcome. Because it's a beginning. In the beginning, it's his salvation. In the middle, it's his salvation. And at the end, all the way to the end, it's his salvation that he offers to us by grace through faith as a gift. And having saved us, the hero also unites us to himself and to one another. Redeemed humanity is united with Christ through the church. At the moment of salvation, uh, the Holy Spirit does a number of things in us and with us. And he indwells us and fills us with his presence. He grants us spiritual gifts. He seals us for the day of redemption. And he blesses us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. If you want a good list, read Ephesians chapter 1 of some of the things the Spirit does for us. And in addition to these things, He also baptizes us, which is the scriptural term for the process of uniting us to Christ and making us part of His body, the church, which is the invisible uh, reality that takes place spiritually that we depict physically with water baptism. That that just as a person is, is by the Spirit... Their sins are buried with Christ and they are raised to new life in Christ. So we bury the person under the water and wash their sins away in the blood of Christ and raise them to new life out of the water, right? Um, that we, dep- we show that uh, on physically what has taken place already spiritually, what the Holy Spirit has already done for us. And the Spirit joins us to Christ and to the church so that we can take on the nature and character of Christ, our hero and rescuer. So if you uh, go to the next slide, Look look at the purpose of this. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until... from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The idea is this, is that God gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, and he gave them to the church as part of the body with the idea that we would all together, because what is, what is everything in the body of Christ that's not hid? Body. (laughs) Okay. Everything that's not Jesus is part of the body, but he's given people within the body certain gifts with the idea that we would all, including those guys, grow up together into maturity in Christ. That we would begin to look like Jesus and we would not be little babies, spiritually speaking, anymore, but that we would be mature men and women who look like and take on the character of Jesus Christ so that we are not uh, just kind of blown around like some people are. You know, I I sometimes, I I need to stay off Facebook sometimes. I really do, (laughs) because there are people out there that they post all kinds of stuff, and it's kind of vaguely spiritual, and you go, where did you get that nonsense, right? Um, And they're just kind of blown about by every spiritual-sounding thing that comes down the pipe, But that's not the goal, that we would stay with a total lack of discernment and total uh, lack of understanding of what the Bible actually has to say about God and about us and about the church and about everything else that's significant in life. The goal is that we would mature. Part of the reason we're talking about some of these central points of doctrine and the faith is so that we might mature and grow up. Because this is part of the heart of the faith. That we would be part of the body of Christ in an active way that we might grow to maturity. Again, I said this a couple of weeks ago, but one of the great myths of modern evangelicalism is that the only relationship that really matters is the one I have with Jesus. But that's not true. My relationships that I have within the church are there for my benefit. To help me to grow to maturity. You know one of the great ways that God does that, by the way, I just let you in on the secret. He puts you into church with people who are also in the process of growing up and who are also sinners, just like you and me. And we have to deal with them. And it's not always easy, is it? Say amen. <laughs> All right? It's not always easy. But you know what? The fact that it's hard to sometimes be loving to the not always lovable one another is part of the maturing process, right? Of learning to put other people and their needs first. And we all are kind of on the journey, growing up together into him who is the head, into Christ, right? There's a lot more here. I could preach on that a while. But um, the final rescue... Of humanity and creation is still to come. In other words, even though the cross has happened, there's still more salvation yet to come. You know what the cross is? I'll tell you, it's D Day, June 6, 1944. Was World War II over? Not, not yet. There was still some fighting left, but the war was over, the Allies had landed. It's it's June. Uh, it's July second, eighteen sixty-three. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain stands on Little Round Top with the twentieth Maine and repels the rebel forces advancing under James Longstreet, and he sends them back down the hill. And he puts his gun emplacements on the top and shells the Confederacy back down south. Gettysburg. Is the war over? Not for two more years. But the war is over. Lee just doesn't know it yet. Right? In the same way, Jesus Christ crucified is Gettysburg. It's D-Day. The hero has landed. The war is over. The mop-up is, is on at this point. Okay? Okay? That's where we are. That's where we are living. We are living in the era after the war is effectively, for all intents and purposes, over. But the mop-up is still to come. And we're still in it. But the final rescue is coming. And the, and the sufferings that we experience now are one day going to be all done. Look at Romans uh, chapter 8, 18-25. to 25. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the re- revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was, sub- was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying the great day is coming. The curse will be reversed. The creation will be healed and us along with it. Our bodies will be renewed. The world will be put back to how it was supposed to be. And though we do not yet see final redemption, there is a day coming when our hope will be replaced by our present reality, when our faith will be sight. And we will no longer need to trust in what we do not see. And that reality draws nearer every single day because the hero, Jesus Christ, has already won the victory. That day is coming. And when it does, it will be well worth the wait. In fact, it will be completely, it will completely surpass all of the pain and suffering that you go through to experience it. You moms, you know what I'm talking about, right? You have nine months of suffering followed by hours and hours of intense pain, right? And then you hold your baby. Is it worth it? Yeah, baby. It sure is. It absolutely is worth it. Would any of you go go back and say, nope, not having that kid again? No. (laughs) Okay, well, maybe some days, (laughs) right? (laughs) But, but, But for the most part, right? For the most part, you are so amazed and blessed that you have this child, right? And let me just tell you, if that is an experience that you can relate to of pain and suffering followed by indescribable joy... The end that is coming will be so much more than that. It will be so much more than that. Jesus says the world is right now in the pain of childbirth, but one day, glory's coming, and it'll be worth it. And the story that we have is infallibly and authoritatively preserved for us in the Scriptures. The last of these seven central truths is just as important as the previous six. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful or profitable for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, right? I'm not reading it off the screen. This is one you need to know, right? Right? I hope you can quote it in whatever translation it is that you read. Because what this is telling us is, is that this book not only tells us a story, one big story, along with a lot of smaller stories and poems and, and other kinds of writings within it, but one big story from beginning to end of creation and fall, and redemption by Jesus Christ, and a restoration. And it's this book that tells us that story in an infallible way. And therefore, it is worth basing your life on. Amen? Now, some of you may, may be wondering at this point, okay, so what? I see these seven central truths, and I understand that they are the basic building blocks of the Christian faith. These things are the center This is orthodoxy. If you're outside of this, you're outside of Christianity. As my church history professor said, if you don't believe these things, uh, what you believe is something, but it's not Christianity. Right? This is the Christian faith. This is the heart of it. But what difference does it make? Well, let me just suggest three things. They matter for the church. They matter for the church. And I'll tell you why. Because if you pull any one of these things out, what you have is not a church anymore. It might have a name that it's a church. It might have a denomination full of lots of people who claim they belong to a church. But if you give up any one of these things, you are not a church because you are no longer holding to the apostles' teaching as it was given. You are no longer holding to Jesus' teaching as he passed it to the apostles. You are no longer holding to this book and what it has to say about the big story that we are all a part of. So it matters. And there are people who bear the name evangelical, in other words, the people of the gospel. Who want to claim that label and say, I'm an evangelical, I'm a gospel person. But they have given up one or more of these. This is the center. You can't move off of this. They matter for the lost. Because if you are going to share the gospel with people, you need to do it all the way. And they need to understand where they fit in the story. And where they fit in the story is they're back in Genesis chapter 3, lost, cast out from the presence of God and unable by their own effort to get back to him and need to have the hero come and rescue them by grace through faith for, the, uh, for their inclusion in the church, for their inclusion in the kingdom of God that is one day coming. And they need to believe what God's word says about these things because God's word is true. They need to know all that. And you and I have a responsibility to share it with them. Mark and his guys are going out again this, this afternoon to share it with some more folks, okay? Um, and they matter to you and me. We who have received and believed in the true story of the creation, the fall, the redemption, and the one-day restoration by the son, the son of God have endless reasons for worship and for evangelism. Amen? If all we knew is that we are characters in this story too, and that God has created us, and we fell into sin, and He has redeemed us in Christ, and He is one day going to restore us with Christ in the heavenly realms. If that's all we knew, And that's quite a bit, by the way. That's the big story of the whole Bible, is these things. Then we have endless reasons to give God praise. And we have endless reasons to share that same story with every lost person that we know. Because Jesus came as our hero and rescuer to save us from ourselves, from our own sin. From the death we deserve and the hell that's awaiting us if we reject it amen amen let's let's uh, let me pray and then we'll sing and we'll pray some more god our heavenly father i pray that you would help us to see the big story that orthodoxy is all about it's not just about dry sounding dusty doctrines in a book but it's about us, and it's about Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, and about the triune God who made the world, whose world rejected him and rebelled against him, but he rescued them by grace and will restore them once more to his presence. Father, help us to see the majesty and glory of your story and our place in it, and help us to worship you and to to share the gospel with those who need to hear it. And hold fast to this story and not some other that anybody else comes up with. Because this is the one that you have told us, and this is the one that is true. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.